and welcome to Mojo for the Modern Man. This is your host, Ken Mossman. And today I am absolutely delighted to be joined by Matt Hogan. And Matt, in, in, in Act One, what are we going to be hearing today? You're going to hear me talk, go into a bit of a deep dive about my journey with attempted suicide, as well as coming to know my own inner voice of my soul. Mm-hmm. And we're also going to hear a bit about your your history growing up in the Midwest, as well as some other gems, and then some pointing at the end of this very rich conversation. <clears throat> so uh, just a quick reminder, if you have not yet, please subscribe to Mojo for the Modern Man on your favorite podcasting delivery service. And with that, let's take the deep dive into this deep conversation between Matt Hogan and myself. Enjoy. Matt Hogan, welcome to Mojo for the Modern Man. It's a delight to have you here. Thanks for having me, Ken. <laughs> yeah, I came yeah. on with a smile ready to talk to you today. Excellent, excellent, excellent. Let's let's work the smile for all it's worth. What was it like? <laughs> yeah, what, what was it like growing up in your part of the world? Well, geographically speaking, I grew up, I was the quintessential boy and his dog growing up in the middle of nowhere in the central Missouri. Um, spent a lot of time in the forest running around and went to a school that was in a town of 103 people and graduated with a class of 60, 65. And so much of it was, it was very country, very, um, hmm, trying to think how best, best describe it. I'll say this. It was, it was very country, very, uh, Midwestern, and I always felt like I didn't belong there. Mm. I actually remember. I actually remember a lot of my trouble in school was I just I got in fight with bullies, and I got in fights with other people all the time just because I didn't feel like I really fit into any group or really belonged anywhere. Where I felt like I belonged most was in the forest uh, with my dog, mostly. And, and, and you said it was very Midwestern. So for those unfamiliar with what that is, say, say un- unpack that a little bit. Very Midwestern. My experience of Midwestern, meaning that very small towns, uh, with the exception of a few cities spread across the area, very small town, very, uh, at least in this Midwestern town, it was largely driven by or in the area, what drove uh, occupations in the area was a prison, a mental hospital, and a nuclear plant. And then within th- between that was just largely forest, fields, and agriculture. Uh, it, was, it was not uncommon to be driving down the road and get stuck behind a tractor driving down the road and having to take your time to get anywhere because the tractor is in front of you. Uh, and let's see, what else? I would say that Getting fast internet and things like that once I started getting older was a, a slow process for the area. There wasn't high urgency to create those kind of infrastructures there. And, you know, I think what would, I've also often heard people from the East and West Coast say is flyover cities. This is what you might refer to as a flyover city or flyover area. Got it. Got it. And And, and what was it about the spending time in in the woods that that really called to you 
it was both the place that I was able to play or three, threefold. It was where I was able to play. Like one of my favorite things to do is I, I used to run the Creek bed that had giant boulders that were pretty big size. And I would leap from them one to one, like an obstacle course running down the Creek bed full speed. So I got to really play and put out a lot of energy. I got to climb trees, swim in the swimming hole, have the, the rope swing and everything that might be uh, stereotypical. And it also was the place where I felt the most peace. Mm. And, and for the first few years of my life, it was also a place of safety from some different circumstances. And it also became a place where I got a chance to take out anger that I had no way to express anywhere else. So like I would tear down trees. I would um, just like throw rocks and just try to get my anger and aggression out in a way that was healthy. What, 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 if you can recall, what, what were you angry about as a kid? Depends on the timeline, but a lot of what my anger was initially in those early years was the departure of my mother when I was really young, when I was two. And then some of the abuse that ensued from a stepmother, uh, that was pretty hard on me as a kid as well as my sister. And so there was a lot of anger around that. And, but when I really got to the core of it and a lot of the personal work I've done, it was, it was that feeling of being unloved. It was feeling alone. It was feeling isolated and like I didn't matter. And so that was much of what the anger was about. Yeah. Thanks for that. Thanks for that. I imagine that may come back into the conversation later on. Um, what, well, when you look at your, you know, your time, uh, actually, I, I'm curious about when did you, you know, when did you part ways with the the area that you grew up in? Well, I barely finished high school. And it, when I say barely, I mean barely. I was actually going to be expelled. And the principal talked to my father. He goes, look, he threw a desk at a teacher. Um he needs to be expelled, but we have one option. And they put me in an alternative school where I was going to school three hours a day, which was really, really good for me because it actually allowed me to get a full-time job. Because even though I had a hard time with authority and getting along with people at the time, I was already a hard worker. And I was looking for jobs at age 12 to try to take care of myself and be independent. And so I worked full-time starting at 15. And then Right after I graduated high school and I finished early with the alternative school, I found myself at a point where I was terrified to leave and terrified to stay and felt mm. powerless, powerless to leave and ended up leading me to putting a bullet in my brain at 18. So at 18 years old, I attempted to take my life. It was Thanksgiving 2004, where I literally I couldn't see a future for myself and the pain of living was scarier than the pain of dying. Wow. So that, that was a a big transition point, as you can imagine, before I left, I left a few months after that. What was, so there's a lot, so so there's a, a, a lot, there's a lot to unpack in there. You know, there's a lot to unpack in there. And, and if you can recall kind of the steps, the events, the relationships, any of it. I mean, you mentioned the abusive relationship with your, with your, um, with your, with your stepmother, if I heard you correctly. Um, Correct. Yeah. What, you know, what, what else 
you know, what were the other pieces that, 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 and that brought you to that edge? When I was growing up, one of the pillars of safety for me was my grandfather. And I watched him die of cancer when I was 12. And then when I was 10, my sister, who was also my protector a lot when I was young, um, had a brain tumor that left her permanently handicapped. And so the, the, the sister that I knew was no longer. She was alive and she lived until I was in my mid-20s and was killed in my 20s. Um, but those were really big points. And actually, not too long after my grandfather died, I attempted suicide the first time and when I was 12. And I took a handful of pills and then they found me half frozen to death in the woods the next day. Uh, so there were a lot of events early on, and then it was really just a continuation of being in this self-perpetuating shame and hate cycle of just like constantly in my, inside of myself, living the story that I'm worthless, living the story that I mean nothing and that I can't go anywhere while also having this other part of me that knew that I needed to get out of there, that I needed to leave. And so it just kept perpetuating itself over and over and over. And just by the time I reached 18 and I was at that critical age of, I cannot stay here any longer, but I don't know how to leave. It was that along with a lot of drugs and sleep deprivation that led to me just pulling the trigger three times and finally, and the third time it went off. What would you say if you could be in conversation with that that younger the that that younger version of you you know and 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 witnessing him go through all of the the challenges you know that he went through what would you what would you want to let him know now that he didn't know then. Hmm. It makes sense that you want to leave, and yet there's more for you beyond this. Hmm. And you know, the interesting thing for me, Ken, is, and while I would never wish attempted suicide on anyone, that bullet saved my life. I know we're going to get there. Um, you, know, you know what? I know we're going to get there, and and we might as well be there now. So yeah, the the yeah yeah. And in fact, that was one of the things you led with when you when you wrote to me and said, "Hey, <laughs> does this sound like an interesting story?" And and the answer was, "Yeah." So so yeah, talk about that. How in what ways did the in what way in what ways did that bullet save your life? So that night, I was standing there, gun in my hand, pulled the trigger, bullet goes off. I felt it go in my brain. I literally felt it searing through my skull. And then I blacked out, fell to the ground. I'm lying on the ground. And then all of a sudden, I hear a voice inside myself that I'd never heard. It was clear. It was firm. It was not like anything I'd heard before. And it said, you're not meant to die today. And within that moment of hearing that voice, my whole body like 
lit up with energy, I woke up again and had enough energy with a bullet in my head to run up the flight of stairs. I was in a basement and actually be able to walk myself to the paramedic that was called. And then going through the hospital, I was in a two-week coma. And when I came out of my coma, they said I may never walk again. And I had left eye neglect, which means I couldn't see the left side of anything. Like I'd be, I would have been looking at you and only see the right side of your body. Mm. Um, and when they told me I may never walk again, I remember sitting on the roof of that rehabilitation center, smoking a cigarette. I'm in my wheelchair. It's that cold winter night. I'm in my hospital gown and it finally just really hits me that all the blame and all the anger that I had towards everyone else as well as myself the only thing that mattered was I was the only one that got myself into that hospital. I was the one responsible for pulling that trigger. I was the one responsible for my life. And then really heavy, like crocodile tears just falling out of my eyes. It even put my cigarette out at the time. And it just really, like, I broke down in that recognition that I put myself there and there was no one to blame. And in that moment following, the same voice came to me again. And it said, you're not meant to live this way and you won't live this way. And once again, that same like fiery energy, just like from my bottoms of my feet all the way up through my body, just opened up like a channel of energy opened up in me. And it was in that moment that I literally recall in my mind and in, in my awareness for the first time, I experienced a possibility of a future, a brighter future that I had never felt before, that I'd never experienced before. And with that came this really deep knowing that I can, I can do this. I can change this. And that is what poured me into, uh, I made the commitment to myself. I said, I will learn to walk again. And I'm going to walk again for my father's birthday, which was a few weeks away. And I poured myself into that. And there's obviously, I could tell all the details, but long story short, by the time my father's birthday came, I took my first steps again towards him. And it was a moment that still brings tears to my eyes when I remember it. Because I, it was hard for me to recognize how much pain I caused my family in doing that. And so that was a meaningful moment, an inspiring moment. And it was also when I was in the hospital that I decided to start trying to do something with my life. And I ended up signing up for college. And it really, it gave me the couple things it really gave me was one, just this deep level of self-responsibility of self-ownership though. I've had many things I've had to work through and still work through to this day. And it's gradually gotten better. I know that it always comes back to me. And the other thing I got was the possibility that change was possible. And those two pieces, the self-responsibility and the vision of possibility has been what has guided my life since then. Pardon the intrusion. Quick reminder, if you have not yet, come by my website, KenMossman.com, and see what I've got cooking over there. Let's dive back into this rich and courageous conversation with Matthew Hogan. Yeah, beautiful. Thank you for that, Matt. What, you know, aside from the the, the circumstance aside, or even, even, even with the circumstance present, the... 
the realization about about responsibility right if we can dig in here a little bit and you were 18 at the time correct you were 18 at the time and um boy for many people uh, many people go all the way through life without ever arriving at at at, at a recognition that um they are responsible uh and there's a lot I could say about responsible. One of my favorite topics that, that they're responsible, um, and, and 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 yet here you are, eighteen, you know, having this you know really brilliant uh, revelation. If you, I don't think that's too strong a word. Uh, revelation about and recognition of your own personal responsibility. What was it in you? You know, as you look now, what was it in you that allowed you to see that at at really kind of a tender young age? I experienced that as a conversation with my soul. Keep going. I just... I, I am. I'm just accidentally made the desk go down. We were going to get, I was going to get shorter. Uh, try, trying out the standing desk. Yeah. Um, I didn't know it at the time that what that voice was to me. It has been something I have learned and discovered years, years later, years and later. But to me, that was that voice that has guided me through some of the most challenging times of my life. And it was an irrefutable voice. It was just, it was something I had never heard inside of me. It spoke to me in such a way that I couldn't ignore it. Like it was very clear that I had to hear that if I was going to live, if I was going to survive, and if I was going to do anything with my life. Yeah. But it, but as it, that's one of the reasons I also say that the bullet saved my life is it gave me access to the voice in me that I know is really easy for a lot of us to ignore. And to shove down until a life circumstance comes along. And when our life collapses and we go from thinking what we know what we needed, and then we get shown what we really needed. And I was shown that at a very young age. And I've been shown multiple times since. Um, I've just learned to listen to it a little bit better over the years where I don't have to have a catastrophe <laughs> for it to happen. Yeah. But, but it, it was, I mean, Ken put it most simply. When I heard that voice, it was a voice I could not deny. It is, you are responsible for your entire life. No one else. Yeah. Yeah. And, and as we begin to, to, um, to, to wind down act one here, and we could ask a lot more, but I have a feeling we're going to dig into a lot of this in our second act. As we get, begin to, uh, to wind down act one, to wrap it up here, what would you, where would you point, where would you point a man, maybe perhaps even a young man, um, but where would you point uh, uh, a man to, um, to begin to notice, allow, and, and listen to that voice? There would be a few things that I would offer. One is 
really starting to become clear on the different voices and nudges that exist within you to begin with. Like actually starting to even begin to cultivate that inner relationship with yourself. Because so often we are so wrapped up in the external world around us, we don't have enough. Like some of us are really good at navigating the external world, but our internal world is like this barren wasteland that we've never really had a chance to really cultivate and come to know. And so time devoted to really noticing the different voices that live within one being that I would say, and this has just been my experience. I think that my, my assumption and his, and what I've seen is that people that have different types of upbringings, they have a very different internal experience, of course. Um, but if you have that voice of an inner critic, any voice inside of you that is telling you that you are bad, you are wrong, you're worthless, you're less than you're meaningless, anything like that, or you're powerless I would just put all of those in one column and just say, these are the parts of myself that are afraid. These are the parts of myself that feel disconnected. These are the parts of myself that feel unloved. And then I would have a column for the parts that are supportive. These are the parts that say, I'm worthy of love. I, I am deserving a good, of a good life. I, I can have a good life. I would even fill that column up with those voices that feel more encouraging and loving. And then I would take it a step further and see if you can actually distill and discern potentially an even quieter voice, because you might hear both of these really loud, but there may be an even quieter voice that what I've experienced with my clients and have for myself personally is that if I'm asking a question of myself, like, what's true for me here? Or what's the right next step? If I look up, I can hear the answers come from my mind. If I look down and ask my question, I can hear a different voice come up through my body. And so playing around with that to see what other voices or nudges or sensations show up when you talk to yourself in your inner landscape. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful. And what I'm particularly taken by is the is the is the 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 use of the body there, which I think we're going to get into in act two, but the 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 physical cue you know if i look if i just tilt my head up i hear one i i am able to hear one voice if i tilt my head down i'm able to connect with another so yeah thank you for that beautiful 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 thank you thank you so much matt looking forward to our act 2 thank you ken Thank you so much for joining me, Ken Mossman, your host here on Mojo for the Modern Man, and of course, my guest, Matthew Hogan. If you want to learn more about Matthew, there are links on the intro notes for today's show, and you're going to learn a whole lot more about Matthew and the rest of his journey with its ups and downs and his pivoting from living a life of the mind to something deeper and richer that that exists beyond the limitations of the cognitive. I'll leave it at that without dropping too many spoilers. And all that is coming in Act 2. An invitation to come by my website, see what I've got going on, visit my I Am page. There's a lot of good information. There's some videos about that program that's all about bringing the integrated adult man in all of us and all of those of us who wear the man skin 
out into the world. So what does that even mean? Well, let's start here. The, you've heard it said, we contain multitudes. And what we do in I Am is we look at some of those multitudes inside of us. Like, who is our inner child? How connected are we to him? How connected are we to our inner adolescent, to our inner masculine, our inner feminine all these different parts of ourselves, our inner adult, of course. What's our relationship to the ego? How are we doing at, at uh, listening to or not listening to the voices in our head that are pointing us in some not necessarily useful directions? And here's my opinion. Bringing in a quote from Einstein who said, you can't solve a problem at the level of consciousness at which it was created. As you look out into the world at the state of men and manhood right now, there's crisis. This isn't front page news anymore. You know, there are books out there that address it some okay, some really not so well. But they all, whether they're coming from the conservative side of the equation or the liberal side of the equation, you know, part of the issue right there uh, that, that, that leads to our uh, polarized state right now, if we're going to get our way out of this mess that we're in, it's going to take some higher levels of consciousness and higher levels of maturity. In other words, it's going to take people coming from adult, you know, a state of being grounded in mature levels of conscious adulthood to move us forward. We live in a culture that is childish, in many cases, adolescent at best, and often devoid of any kind of levels of responsibility, you know, landing us in contests of finger-pointing and blame that makes for a sensational clickbait and a whole lot of likes, thumbs up, thumbs down, but it doesn't address the complex issues that are facing us in a very, very real way. And it's going to take uh, adult levels of maturity and self-awareness to address the kinds of complexity that we are facing today. And as a plus, I got to add this in here too, uh, uh, as a plus, you know, men who have been through the IM program uh, report uh, improved levels of connection in their relationships with their partners, with their kids, with their organizations, that they've up-leveled their leadership considerably. There's a whole lot to this. So, Come by and have a look and reach out to me with questions. I'm happy to have a conversation with you to find out if I am is your next move and also to give you a, a, a tour of the program so you know everything you need to know in order to make a good decision. And uh, of course, my hope is that you will indeed come and join us in September. And of course, there's going to be more courses launching in the new year if September does not work for you. But let's get it going. Quick shout out of gratitude to Carly Farrar for her copywriting magic here on Mojo for the Modern Man, to Megan Johnson. Both Megan and Carly are with Knack and Company. Megan is my virtual assistant who keeps things uh, moving along and cooking in my world. And of course, to Josh Hines, the brilliant sound editor behind every episode of Mojo for the Modern Man. Be well, take care, make it a great day, and we'll see you back here soon on Mojo for the Modern Man.